Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 137, recorded on September 29th, 2021. The Cloud Pod, now serving clients in the Shire. Hey, everybody. <laughs> Justin is hey out for the week, and we are still recording. <laughs> See how this one goes. Yeah. See if it goes well, better than last time or not. That'll teach him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, at least we're doing it this time instead of, you know, him coming back and we still haven't recorded. You think like 40% of the people just logged off? Like, oh, boy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's not there. Well, well not- yeah, 40% logged off. The other 60% are like hovering over the button to see how well we do. And then. All right. Well, stick with us. We're going to give this a, yeah. give it a good shot. <laughs> Without our fearless leader. All right. Well, I'll get us kicked off. Um, first up in AWS news, uh, AWS announces the general availability of Amazon QuickSight Q. Ooh. Amazon QuickSight is a cloud-based machine learning powered BI service that makes it easy to quickly create and publish interactive BI dashboards. It helps companies back up high velocity decisions with insights from their data, like whether to adjust prices based on real-time trends. Customers also want the ability to ask business questions in plain language and receive accurate answers and relevant visualizations. Enhanced. Amazon QuickSight Q gives anyone in the organization the ability to ask business questions using natural language and receive accurate answers with relevant visualizations that will help them gain insights from the data. The service does not depend on pre-built dashboards or reports to deliver visualizations. And it also provides autocomplete suggestions for key phrases and business terms. I'm dying to try this to see how bad the results are at first, but more importantly, to see if they actually get good over time. Yeah, for sure. Such a pain, right? It's such a pain to set up BI tools, especially when I remember back from like like business objects in the 90s and VPs trying to set up reports at their desk on their their PCs. And it was so challenging to get the insights they needed. Yeah, I mean, Microsoft Excel is still like the most powerful tool in for making business decisions. And it's it, it's the same thing, right? It's it's a way to sort of visualize the raw data that you have. And so being able to you know, ask a service a question in normal words is if that kicks off, that's going to be super powerful. Yeah. And, and with just backup charts, I mean, that's like straight out of the movies. It's going to. Yeah. I'm going to have low expectations to start, but I'm excited to, to watch as it right. as it matures. Yeah, and it's interesting because QuickSight's not easy to set up those dashboards and get the data in the right. Like you can, you can make some beautiful things with it, but it's very difficult. Yeah, it's just a step on the on the on the ladder, though. Just think think of the, what this could mean for the future of of natural language questioning of data sets. I mean, like you mentioned, you know, subject Q earlier, and uh, mm-hmm. I kind of have to go there because. The, the natural language interface to the to the Star Trek computers always fascinated me. Mm-hmm. How I could pass all those massive data sets? Obviously, it didn't because it's just a show. But you know, I like to believe things. <laughs> <laughs> but just, well, that said, you know, like you can you can have your digital assistant at home, you know, and there's yeah, you know, there's a reason why computer is one of the action words that you can use <laughs> for that. Yeah, exactly, because we're all Star Trek nerds. I, and I think <laughs> I, I think I think today Google Home probably still beats out Siri and Alexa when it comes to somewhat naturally formed language queries because I think they have the they have the search engine where people have typed in billions mm-hmm. of search requests and so they know the things that people click on when they ask certain questions. Mm-hmm. I think something like this though is is just it's just gonna blow them out of the water. I mean imagine something like IMDB, you could ask Alexa, you know, t- tell me tell me all the movies where this person and this person 
uh, featured together or tell me yeah. tell me how many movies this person was in between this year and this year and just just the, the power that AI can bring to to that type of interaction with people in their homes is just going to change the world yeah no absolutely tell as a CEO of a of a large company you know should we buy company X and just boom you get a bunch of uh, a bunch of yeah, data and charts that support or refute it. Sales forecasts, yeah, yeah, income numbers. It would be amazing. Yeah. Well, next up, AWS are to open data centers in uh, New Zealand. Amazon Web Services announced plans to open an infrastructure region in the Aotearoa, New Zealand region, in 2024. Uh, the new AWS Asia Pacific region will join the existing 81 AZs in uh, 25 geographic regions at launch. The region will be owned and operated by a local AWS entity in New Zealand, and um, an economic impact study estimates it'll create up to a thousand new jobs through investment over the next fifteen years. That's a long time. A thousand mm-hmm. jobs over fifteen years. I figured it'd be more than that for a AWS region, but you know, with salespeople and everything else. But hey, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, Australian New Zealand Bank um, is very popular in the area. They have a relationship with almost fifty percent of New Zealanders. And their CIO, Michael Bullock, said, our tech center is world-class, and this sort of investment is a great step toward providing New Zealand with greater technical resilience and opportunities for innovation. Air New Zealand is New Zealand's national carrier with a global network of passenger and cargo services flying more than 17 million passengers passengers every year. Wow, it's like everyone in New Zealand flying 10 times. (laughs) 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 Can I get lightning round points early for this now? Yeah, exactly. All all the rules are out the window. Uh, that was around 3,400 flights per week before the pandemic. They say that they aim to be the world's leading digital airline by providing seamless digital experience from the moment customers start planning their trip until after they return home. The new AWS infrastructure will help uh, us deliver on our vision, provide customers even faster access to our services, and underpin our delivery of a best-in-class digital experience to Kiwis for many years to come. When I was living in Australia, there was always the talk, and I know it was keep going, of the, uh, of the brain drain from New Zealand. Uh, out uh, specifically with tech jobs. So I agree with you, Jonathan. I, I think that they're underestimating the number of jobs this could create uh, as far as the ripple effect through that through that industry. So that'd be, that'd be cool to watch and maybe good for New Zealand. That's a great country. Love to see them thrive. Yeah, very selfishly. That's, that's why I'm looking forward to this press or why I enjoy this press release is because I want to figure out how to move a workload that's New Zealand specific and then go there and set it up somehow. Yeah. <laughs> it's in the cloud, but I need, I really need to go. But there. I really need to go there and <laughs> be close to it just to be, just in case. It requires a yeah. lot of compliance and we will have to visit the data center. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'll come up with some reason, but I want to go. New Zealand looks amazing. All right. New for AWS distro for open telemetry. Tracing support is now generally available. Support for traces is now generally available in AWS Distro for Open Telemetry, which is a mouthful to say. The project provides tools, APIs, and SDKs to instrument, generate, collect, and export telemetry data. You can instrument your applications running on EC2, ECS, uh, EKS, Lambda, and all kinds of other stuff, um, which is cool. What about containers on AWS Fargate? You know, that's, that's on the list. (laughs) <laughs> that I wasn't going to read. Uh, <laughs> and you can send that tracing data collected by containers on AWS Fargate, and it's collected by AWS Distro for Open Telemetry to AWS X-Ray. 
And if we put AWS in there one more time, I think we win the prize. Yeah. Uh, so not only can you send it to X-Ray, but you can also sell it to partner destinations such as AppDynamics, Dynatrace, Grafana, Honeycomb, Lightstep, New Relic, and Sumo Logic. So this is super cool. Like I, I know I'm a little late to the observability space just because I, you know, I've lived and breathed metrics and and logs for so long. But uh, nothing like running a logging platform to really get you away from <laughs> into the observability space. Yeah, nothing. And uh, so learning about this, like these types of enablements where you're, you know, you can really have high cardinality data embedded directly in your code is super cool. And I'm glad to see this taking off. Yeah, nothing makes you realize that logs were never the right way to actually um, generate business insights or metrics than mm-hmm. running a logging platform. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. It's awesome. I mean, AWS is just eating away, away, away at the uh, Elasticsearch cake. And the, I mean, to be fair, they're eating away at AppDynamics and Dynatrace and everybody else's cake as well. So it's. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, this is specifically cake. for everybody. Amazon's yeah. going to eat everyone's cake. cake. Yeah. It is. It's a full vertical. I mean, eventually it's going to just be, you know, the full vertical supply chain from mm-hmm. the ground that you build the data center on all the way up through the application that you run. That's got, you know, that's the target. Mm-hmm. It is, you know, it's, it's, it's weird to think about because everyone's still talking about vendor lock-in, vendor lock-in. I think in, a, in five years time or, or some, some arbitrary time in the future, it's going to be, people are going to be worried about vendor lock-out. It's like, <laughs> why? <laughs> that's interesting. Why should we bother? Why do we bother looking at anybody else than this mm-hmm. single provider who, who provides visibility into the full stack and this amazing suite of managed services like what's the differentiating point i mean you don't want a monopoly you don't want a monopoly, you know, you don't want a monopoly yeah. but there's gonna have to be some really compelling reason to to not use a service which is already integrated with your console and your tooling and everything else and go with some other yeah you know, some other thing so yeah i do like that they're you know they're not doing the normal play where or i guess i don't know if it's normal but where you know they are opening up these where you can send you know, your metric data to other providers, right? So if you have an existing, you know, enablement with Dynatrace, for instance, and you can, you know, you can still use this and not have to sort of like reinvent everything on day one. Yeah. And you can slow roll it out and sort of, you know, I think it's, yeah, I think they do that specifically um, so that they can compete and easier, easier to compete. It is nice. Yeah. Just think how easy it's going to be to migrate from any of those platforms back to the AWS uh, solution. Mm-hmm. In the future, it's just a click of a button, just an API yep. call. Yep. It's just, yeah, a config file, right? Like yep. that's basically all you're doing is changing that. And, you know, and some of the, some of these providers have some hard limitations that I don't like. And so like, you know, you know, if you're limited by the number of business rules or, or number of metrics, you know, it makes reporting the, the general overall to and fro of your application very difficult if you have to choose your favorite 100, mm. for instance. And so like, it's, you know, having something that's, Based on an open source, open you know, open telemetry framework and all that, like it's powerful and flexible. Pretty cool. Let the AI pick which metrics are important. <laughs> yeah, 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 really. Well, Aqua is now available for Amazon Redshift RA three X plus nodes. Aqua is the advanced query accelerator for Redshift, and is now generally available. Aqua is the is a new distributed and hardware accelerated cache that enables Amazon Redshift to run up to ten times faster, not a hundred times. Sorry, Oracle, than other oh. enterprise cloud <laughs> data warehouses by automatically boosting certain types of queries. It's very, very vague. I'm like, hmm, 
Yeah, cash is a cash, right? But yeah. Amazon Redshift RA3 is the latest generation node type that allows you to scale compute and storage of your data warehouses independently. Uh, Aqua is now available with the RA3 16x large, 4x large, or XL plus nodes at no additional charge and with no code changes. The only thing you need to do is power off your cluster and spin up a new one. Nice. And if you run an inefficient query enough times, Aqua will then cache the results and give it to you yeah, next really. time. <laughs> yeah, before I knew what Aqua was, like it just seemed like magic. Like it's, you know, your your DB query is going to return 10 times faster on the same data set. Like what? Like that's nuts. But now I realize it's just a cache. It's just a cache. <laughs> <laughs> Those results are the same. Hey, these idiots keep keep making the same query 50 times over. <laughs> Let's... <laughs> Which is largely the use case, right? Like on a lot of workloads, that is that is very common. And so like it's pretty funny. Yeah. This is just enablement at a at a, a very deep layer. I mean yeah, I mean they could just keep charging you for it and you suffer the bad performance, but it's kinda of like you know, it's hurting us more than it's hurting you. So mm-hmm. here, have have this thing, please use it. Yeah. Well, or you know, it's it's driving adoption of Redshift, right? Like you, you know, oh, Redshift doesn't perform, and it's like, no, it's the query, <laughs> you know, like that you're running. It, it takes 27 hours to run, and so how do you how do you combat that customer perspective? Yeah, make it better, faster, cheaper. People use it more. Yep. Amazon Macy adds support for selecting managed data identifiers. So Amazon Macy uses a combination of criteria and techniques, including machine learning, because everything has to have machine learning, and pattern matching to detect sensitive data. Um, Amazon Macy now allows you to select which managed data identifiers to use when you create a sensitive data discovery job. So you can ignore all those credit card numbers while really alerting on all those pesky social security numbers in your data set. <laughs> just, just, I just want to know... Uh, NFL scores. Just tell me about that. <laughs> I, I want to know NFL scores. That's fine as long as your credit card information is not embedded in the data set with those NFL scores. Uh, Macy allows you to customize which data types you deem sensitive and would like Macy to alert on. And you can set these per specific data governance and privacy needs within your organization. When you create a job, you create, you choose from the growing list of managed data identifiers such as PII, financial information, or credential materials that you would like to target for each sensitive data discovery job. So, you know, I want to configure a Macy rule that's just my personal information so that I can figure out where that is and scrub it. (laughs) Right. I will find some way to use this for evil. Each managed data identifier is designed to detect a specific type of sensitive data, for example, credit card numbers, AWS secret keys, or passport numbers for a particular country or region. Again, yeah, this is exactly what I can use. Um, and discovery is free for the first one gigabyte per account per region each month. And additional scanning is charged according to the Amazon Macy pricing plan. Read, it's very expensive after that. <laughs> of course, you can always learn more of the Amazon Macy documentation. I have not used uh, the new version of Macy, to be quite honest, because the the first version was so cost prohibitive that I've really just moved away from it and went back to kind of like an old school, no one gets access to data sort of management. And so I'm really hoping, like I like this first gigabyte is free because it's a lot of data, you know, for hopefully text. And and the prices, I mean, the second version, right? The prices were like 90% cheaper or something. Mm. Yeah, a lot less. 
I mean, I, I, I like that idea of being able to turn off or, or, or specifically say, we know that these things are in this data set and we mm-hmm. know that these things aren't in this data set to get rid of the false positives. Because I think false positives are the types of problems that just destroy the ability for a small team to respond to alerts that mostly could be generating across a massive data set. I mean, a passport number is, 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 is numerical for the most part. And without, without enough context, you could, you could misidentify it as being a passport number or even a credit card number or a phone number or something else. And so, yeah, if, you, if you're sure you know what's in the data set, then, then this is awesome. But I think, I mean, in a way, it's a little disappointing that it doesn't do a better job of discovering these things. Yeah. I mean, that's supposed to be the power of Macy is that it's, it's not detecting the presence of this data. It's detecting the risk of the presence of this data as it was sold to me anyway. And so it's, you know, you, there are going to be data sets that you want to store that are going to have email addresses and they're going to have addresses. And it's the combination that makes that risky. Like if you can tie an address to a specific individual and that's publicly accessible, that's the problem. And Macy's supposed to alert on that, that criteria. Um, in practice, it seems a little bit more low, low rent than that. Like, you know, and it's, it's funny because, you know, like the amount of false positives you get and then the amount of times when I'm trying to test an alert by giving it data that I think it should alert on and it yeah. doesn't. Yeah. Um, and so I'm hoping that these, you know, these managed data identifiers allow you to really pinpoint that information and make this much more usable than it's been previously. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. In, in a way. It's 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 good for reducing the noise. I think it's probably it, it's best use case here. But I have a history in healthcare and the pharma industry, and one of the big concerns is is that people type things in the wrong boxes. You know, they mm. they, they type, oh, there isn't there isn't a field on this form for this particular bit of information that this person gave me over the phone. So I'm just going to type it here in the notes field or in this free mm-hmm. text box. All of a sudden, your data classification goes out the window because now you're storing something which shouldn't be there. Probably not encrypted suitably, certainly not flagged as as restricted data. And so, yeah, I think I think we really have some way to go to to enforce uh, you know sensibility of <laughs> of where we keep mm-hmm. sensitive information in the cloud. Well, speaking of sensibility, Amazon ECR has finally added the ability to replicate individual repos to other regions and accounts. Uh, ECR launched the ability to replicate specific repos to accounts or regions and to see when images were replicated through the ECR API, which is kind of nice. You don't need to uh, start a deployment one night if all the containers haven't finished copying over yet. Mm-hmm. This gives you granular control to replicate images within repos you want instead of replicating all images in the repo and ability to automate actions through the new Describe Image Replication Status API uh, whenever images are replicated. To get started, you can specify which repos to replicate with a prefix within the AWS Management Console. Uh, for example, you can replicate all repos containing only the pattern prod. We will link to the full documentation and the walkthrough in the show notes because the walkthrough is pretty comprehensive. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, we're already using this for DR. Yeah. You tag a specific DR version of your container image? Is that? Well, no, right now it's because this feature just came out, so we can't already oh, okay. be using this particular feature, but just. ECR replication. It's so, so right now it's just all, but yeah, yeah it can definitely make it more, uh, less of a shotgun approach. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's a huge cost savings, right? Cause that's, you want your, your CI pipelines to generate images, you know, and a lot of them 
in in practice, right? You're not going to use all of those. Um, you're going to certify a release. You're going to promote that through the pipeline. And, and now this gives the option to sort of have your cake and eat it too, where, you, you know, depending on how you tag your image for release, it will, it will then make it where it's accessible by your production environments or your higher environments. And, you know, before this, I think everyone's doing the same thing where it's just a shotgun approach. You just replicate everything and you pay for it multiple regions. Like, yep. What else you got to do? I kind of wonder if this is some response to a, a customer pain point, like some, somebody's Jenkins job pushed, uh, you know, a billion containers to uh, do an ECR repo over the weekend or something and cost uh, enormous Oopsie. amounts of money mm-hmm. <laughs> in cross-region replication charges. Like, hey, okay, we need a feature to, to stop that happening again, please. Maybe. Well, this has been a feature of other repository technologies for a long time. So this is, in my in my opinion, very overdue because it's, you know, this is something that, you know, it has to be applied wisely. You, you don't want to have different builds for different environments, but you also want to be able to sort of, you know, rein in the madness of, of, true continuous integration, like with Docker containers, where you're just generating on every commit. And if you've ever seen my commit history, it's just 27 swear words followed by typo, typo, 27 more swear words. And each one of those gets an image created for it. And so, um, you know, I like the fact that not all of those are going to end up costing money. In all yeah. regions, just my local bucket will be expensive. And Bug fixed. Can be attributed to my bad development patterns. Bug really fixed this time. No, really. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, I wish I'd squashed these mergers before pushing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, I really wish I had squashed these mergers before pushing one. <laughs> yeah. Hey, everyone. Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash thecloudpod www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. AWS announces the availability of Microsoft Windows Server 2022 so that Amazon, as you know, creates and manages Microsoft Windows AMIs. And now they're providing or announcing the providing of the 2022 AMIs, which is, you know, early since it's 2021 is it is it become yeah it's like a like a new car (laughs) yeah yeah november release date yeah so you know now you can launch windows 22 22 amis which is super cool if you're going to test out the new features but uh just remember you can never kill that windows 20 2008 server that is key to the business somehow um yes it will never die we have some of those somewhere Mm -hmm. there's always one there's always one Uh, Moving on to GCP, Google extends its cloud storage capabilities with more choices on data replication. Uh, Google Cloud General Manager of Storage Guru Pangal and Director of Product Management Brian Schwartz discussed the relevance of dual-region and multi-region buckets in Google Cloud Storage in an interview with SiliconANGLE, which is worth watching. Uh, These Google-only features, as as they like to claim, rely on technologies (laughs) (laughs) like Colossus and Spanner to provide a continent-sized storage infrastructure that spans multiple geographic locations 
dual region buckets made up of single global namespace, looking at US3, that spans mm-hmm. two regions. This feature has been limited because Google has always provided the two region pairs for users to pick from. Um, so you, know, you basically don't get the choice. You, you, ah. you get the choice of, of, of their choice. <laughs> mm-hmm. Users are now able to pick from different choices of regions to pair to better serve their users or comply with local laws. Yeah, that's this is super cool because it used to be, I think, like the one region over, right? Like it was, it was very much a cost concern, obviously, on the the Google backbone. So if you're, you know, putting one in Asia, you were going to get another AZ in Asia, you know, somewhere or not re- another region. And so now being able to have that replication span, you know, if I, you know, if my user base is here in Europe, for instance, in the US, then I can choose those two locations. So that's very cool. Yeah, definitely, definitely think about um, offshore workloads and things. You may want to replicate between the US and, and Europe or the US and India or some combination of things like that. So mm-hmm. it's, it's nice to have the flexibility. How do you compare it to AWS bucket replication? Well, it's, it's one namespace. So the, the difference is, is that I, I don't have to care. And so with bucket replication, I still need to know which endpoint is local to me to call it versus this right. one. It's it's a since it's a single namespace. Well, there you go. Yeah, I think it's pretty cool that they get to say stuff like continent size storage infrastructure. Like, yeah, pretty sweet. I would also say that in every interview I ever had, if I was that on that product team, <laughs> with a name like Colossus, you know, you can't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Announcing backup for GKE, the easiest way to protect GKE workloads. Backup for GKE is a simple cloud-native way for you to protect, manage, and restore your containerized applications and data. But wait, Bob. Or in other words, I want more. how to make your containers VMs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Making stateless, stateful again. Yeah. Uh, with Backup GKE, you can more easily meet your service level objectives, automate common backup recoveries and tasks, and show reporting and compliance and audit purposes. Like. I'm reading the press release sort of word by word, but I and I, sort of intentionally up until a second ago, just because I, I I am sort of like I lament sort of like the abuse of of this, and it and I started going off on a tangent on the you know the confines that we are used to operating in have led to different practices for containers and VMs, and this is one of the ones where I see that you know they're trying to make GKE work for every single workload, and I'm not sure that some of those practices should continue. And so this is, you know, I get it, you know, before the service, you know, if you were a GKA customer, you, you were probably still backing up your data. If you had a stateful app, um, you're probably backing up either a database or some sort of object store as part of that data. And then if you ever needed to restore that data, you're doing some very complex orchestration, um, creating copies of that data and migrating from, migrating the data from one cluster to another, you know, and then if you're restoring the cluster state um, to exercise that data in a new place, you're having to do extra uh, orchestration in order to create that infrastructure and then restore the data onto it. And I can see how that's very cumbersome, but, you know, like it's, I don't know, like it's one of those things where I'm not sure. I can see how this is going to be super useful, but I'm not sure it's going to allow, it's going to lead to the best practice. Yeah, and I think we've—I think what I've learned over the years, because you see, Amazon has released features like this all the time that we sort of mock a little bit. But um, the reality, I think, is that you know, you you try to follow good practice all of the time, 
And sometimes for, not for everything, but for one specific workload or one specific incident, it's like, if I had that feature, right, <laughs> then mm-hmm. it just makes my life so much easier. For, and so I think giving us the rope to hang ourselves with is a good thing, not a bad thing. And then we got to figure out how to use those features judicious, judiciously. I mean, that's true. There's a lot of workloads that I've evaluated and ruled out containers being an option because of the statefulness of that application. And so, you know, this does change that math equation, which I like. So how do you patch uh, the OSs inside these containers? Hmm? <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> and and virus, oh, yeah, virus yeah, scans just, and uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Why, why would you just have one process in that container when you could have, you know, your application process and then 17 agent processes running inside it as well? Like, yes, that's, you know, that's right. All generating data. And waiting for the day I get a request for somebody to RDP into their, their Windows container instance. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. All right. Introducing Google Cloud Deploy, managed continuous delivery to GKE. I mean, how else are you going to deploy all those backup configs? Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Got to get that stateful data somehow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> continuous delivery is frequently top of mind for organizations adopting GKE. However, continuous delivery, deploying container artifacts into your various environments remains complex, particularly in Kubernetes environments. Finally, they admit it. <laughs> I finally had a breakthrough with a, with a therapist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> with little in the way of accepted best practice, Oh, yeah, someone's going to get fired for this press release. Building and scaling continuous delivery tooling pipelines and repeatable processes is hard work that requires a lot of on-the-job experience. And if you can last that long, it doesn't have to be this way. Google Cloud deploy a managed, opinionated, continuous delivery service uh, that makes continuous delivery to GKE easier, faster, and more reliable. That was a terrible sentence. Oh, well. Apparently, it can lower the cost of ownership and provides structure by allowing customers to declaratively define delivery pipelines and targets alongside its release, which in itself is awesome. It is. And there's, I mean, there's a lot of tools that are out there that are striving to make this easy as well. That is no way to talk about the people implementing GKE. (laughs) 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 I mean, it is funny because this is sort of, this is my, my daily life. Uh, for at least the last 18 months now is is really thinking really hard about how software makes it from environment to environment and then to production. And no matter where where you're hosting this workload, what cloud provider, what technology, there's there's trials and tribulations and, and hurdles that have to be overcome. And it is nice to see all the announcements from a lot of the cloud hypervisors lately just really tackling this problem. They, I think people are, really do understand that it's a challenging problem um, and there's different solutions for different technologies and yes, Jenkins will do it, but uh, you shouldn't make Jenkins do everything. Sometimes it's not the right solution. So, you know, I like to see more of these bespoke sort of deployment um, technologies that are really focused on deploying, you know, doing the one thing really well rather than doing right. all things. Yeah. Tightly integrate with that service should make it a lot easier to use. Yeah, and it's good that they call out that it's an opinionated thing. It's and, and that it may not be the best thing for you. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's a suggestion. It obviously works for a lot of people. Otherwise, they wouldn't be they wouldn't be pushing it and putting their name on it. It's it's funny. It kind of reminds me of the the GitFlow documentation that I've been referring people to yeah. for ten years. Mm-hmm. 
like I recently posted it again in our chat room because I, I never I always like save the image and then lose it and download it again. So <laughs> sorry uh, for your bandwidth, but <laughs> I searched for it again a few days ago for the first time in a year probably to to post to somebody in our Slack channel. And there's a note ahead of this image now that says, you know, this model was conceived more than ten years ago. You know, it was never intended to be the the definitive standard. You know, it's something that worked for us. Stop, stop pimping my work as as being the only way to make Gitflow work. I'm like, well, yeah, but it works so well. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, especially if you illustrate something clearly enough. Especially that which Gitflow can be complex, right? When you're trying to trying to apply it to your your flow, it is the same. That's pretty funny. For listeners of the Cloud Pod, you know that I have no love for Microsoft Active Directory, which is why I'm excited to tell you about the leading cloud directory platform, JumpCloud. JumpCloud makes it easy to solve today's IT challenges by unifying device and user management through a single pane of glass, enabling you to securely manage your users and devices and perform common tasks like onboarding and offboarding remote workers. With JumpCloud, you no longer need to implement an on-premise Active Directory infrastructure or additional tooling to scope a user's access, and you can ensure that the user is coming from trusted devices and networks. Enabling JumpCloud's zero-trust solutions improves the security and compliance of your network, ensuring users have access only to the services they need when they need them. To start your organization's move to a modern, secure hybrid work model, try JumpCloud for free today at cloud.jumpcloud.com slash thecloudpod. That's cloud.jumpcloud.com slash thecloudpod. Moving on to Azure. Yeah. Yeah. First up, Azure Functions Runtime 4.0 is now in public preview. Azure Functions 4.0 is expected to reach GA in November 2021, which is coming up pretty quick. Um, and it's coinciding with the rele- the planned GA release of .NET 6.0. Uh, Azure Functions 4.0 will support the followage. The followage? <laughs> followage. Ooh, we're going to have to edit this. This is going to be rough. Supporting the following language runtime versions, .NET 6.0 in process, isolated process, which if I, th- I think if I was a .NET developer, I would know what that means, but I'm not. Um, Node.js 14, Python 3.7 and 3.8, Java 8 and 11, PowerShell 7, and custom handlers. Wow. Pretty cool. That's funny. It's like 20 years later, we're still on version 6 of .NET, whereas... Other things were up to version like 35 of Fedora yeah. and stuff like that. It's, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, .NET, they cheat, right? There's .NET Core, .NET Framework, .NET, you know. And so I, I, I'm i not exactly sure how it all breaks down. I know there's various levels of support. And some of them are easy. Meanwhile, in those 10, <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, in those 10 years, we got Terraform finally got to 1.0. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm waiting for the first breaking change they announce after the 1.0 release. Exactly. Just <laughs> every, now everything is broken. Yeah. yeah. Everything yeah. is broken. Yeah. Bust out the popcorn. They get convinced to me like, no, really, one dot something this time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> we mean it this time. Mm-hmm. Well, now in public preview, distributed tracing for Java apps on Azure Functions Linux. Azure Monitor Application Insights Java integration with Azure Functions on Linux allows you to view richer data from your functions applications including requests, dependencies, logs, metrics, in fact, all the things you would expect from distributed tracing. Application monitoring for Azure functions can be enabled directly from the Azure portal because how else would you enable something on Azure than clicking in a portal? Yes. Uh, the integration with Azure functions is now in public preview and will feature the consistent monitoring experience that is available for the application insights Java 3.x agent. 
the additional data also lets you see and diagnose end-to-end -end transactions and see the application map and what the average performance and the error rates are like. More observability. Yeah, this goes back to what we were saying earlier with observability, and it's just this is great. Like I, you know, any way that you can really demonstrate what the app is doing, you know, function to function, um, becomes super important. So glad to see this is rolling out for for Java applications on Azure. All right. So next is two releases in one. Azure database for MySQL and PostgreSQL. Pipeline support is now in public preview. So release pipelines in Azure, help the team continuously deliver software continuously. You can fully automate the testing and delivery in multiple stages or set up semi-automated processes and rules for on-demand deployments. With support for Azure database for Postgres and MySQL, Flexible Server, you can deploy your database updates using Flexible Server execute command, which I guess a CLI is better than nothing. You can craft your DB update commands in either a SQL file or an inline SQL script, and you can update your database at will. Just make sure that you have a tested rollback process. Mm. These are pipelines to do like database migrations. Um, yeah, so Azure Pipelines is 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 an orchestrator, a deployment orchestrator for for promoting code from environment to environment. And so frequently, when you you know update your application, you have to change your database, right? Either an update yeah. to the schema or you know. What have you? And so this is a, uh, you know, there's this has always been the afterthought in many deployment orchestrators. Is like, how do you, what do you do with that database? Especially if you have like an, an immutable sort of environment where you don't want to allow someone access to go log on and do a thing. Um, so this is, you know, this is sort of the the stopgap I see, which is like you can craft sort of a CLI command to execute. Yeah, we're I totally been underserved in the whole CD. Arena, it's like ignore the problem; it'll go away because it sounds mm -hmm. hard. Mm -hmm. More tooling here is helpful. Yeah, and uh, you'll see a lot. I mean, I've seen a lot of environments where the immutable sort of ends at the database, right? It's like, well, everything's immutable except for that one server, right? That you know we let Frank log into and just execute randomly during change windows. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. We you know just as a the only application programming I've ever done was in Ruby on Rails, and that's just got the built-in database migration tooling just built into the into the framework and it made it so easy and then i like other people developing other things that you don't have this uh <laughs> how, i don't understand how are we gonna how are we yeah. gonna do it and then none of the cd tools seem to be super supportive i think there's a there's a couple of frameworks out there but it's cool to see this getting integrated with the tools yeah the cd tools and it's so important that now i mean it's we're not just talking about 20 year old you know, three-tier web apps and things anymore the applications that people are deploying anymore are I mean, not to mention AI and ML. I mean, but they're, they're highly data-driven applications. And so you have two entirely separate pipelines. You have the code pipeline, and then you have the data pipeline. Where, what's generating the data? How do, you, how do you consume that data? And so being able to move what was essentially, you know, the other critical piece of your application uh, from environment to environment is like, how has it been missed for such a long time? This is awesome. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it's all like this talking about Windows SQL upgrades and things, probably only something you need to use every 16 years or so. <laughs> well, Azure resource health for Azure database for PostgreSQL, Flexible Server is now in public preview. For some reason, Azure seems to be paying a lot of attention to databases this week. <laughs> as, much, 
Uh, Azure Resource Health for Azure Database. For, oh, what a long, what a long name that is. It really is. Azure Resource Health for Azure Database for PostgreSQL Flexible Server, which is the full name of the feature. Thank you, Ryan. Can help you diagnose <laughs> <laughs> and get uh, get support by quickly highlighting if the database is unhealthy due to widespread issues or a non-platform event meaning it's our problem or your problem. Yeah, yeah. yeah. if yeah. it's non-platform, it's your fault. Right. <laughs> yeah. Azure <laughs> Resource Health informs you about the current and past health history to help diagnose that weird performance uptick in your response metrics last week. And you can add alerts based on event status, resource status, previous resource status, and reason type for your on-call enjoyment. Nice. Yeah. I was I'm coming off an on-call shift, so it might be a little, you know. <laughs> Just keep it healthy. A little fresh in my head. Yeah, I'd rather it just always be healthy. Yeah, reason for this alert: we see you trying to have fun with your family. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Your wife calls. She says she didn't want to hang out with you anyway. <laughs> yeah. And finally, Azure Database for PostgreSQL Flexible Server finally has Terraform support, but only in public preview. So it's the final database announcements this week. Um, in what seems like an 11 billion database announcements from Azure. And, you know, pretty cool. They're rolling out the support just a mere four and a half years after Azure database for PostgreSQL is in public preview itself. So, woo. I think I'm going to rename public preview. I mean, we should rename it as like Peep Show or something. The Azure yeah. Peep Show. <laughs> <laughs> it is sort of an interesting, that is like, private preview. Is what that is. <laughs> Oh. Well, have you been to Amsterdam? Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> and that is it in news this week. Awesome. Peter. We made it. We made it. Oh, yeah. no, I'm not recording. I'm just joking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, never, never mind. We lost half the audience after, half the remaining yeah. audience after Peter has said he mentioned Ruby on yeah. Rails anyway. So. On the lightning <laughs> round. On the lightning round. And that's the general availability of Azure AD joined VMs support. I see this as uh, Azure just throwing in the towel that AD is hard. And so you can now basically do desktop VMs without joining AD. Thank you. Next <laughs> <laughs> up, AD joined containers. <laughs> All right. Well, there's a startup called Harness, and they are tackling the hated DevOps tab uh, tasks with their intelligent automated platform. Wow, does, does it shave and take care of personal personal health issues for, for the staff? <laughs> yeah, really. <that's... laughs> I resemble that remark. How dare you, sir? Slider, you stink. Yeah. <laughs> Amazon Easy EC2 fleet instant mode now supports targeted Amazon EC2 on-demand capacity reservations. And, uh, Nothing more sure foolproof than like your on-demand capacity being reserved so that you can do a uh, fleet on it. <laughs> yeah, the only thing missing from this is is spot. It's too bad that Amazon EC2 fleet spot doesn't support on-demand and capacity reservations. It's just every single model rolled into one. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, I read that. I read that as it did. It was spot, but I guess I guess fleet is different. Oops. Yeah, I mean, who, who would have thought you wanted to actually use those? Reserves capacity instances that you've been paying for for the thing you wanted to use it for. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, how about? I mean, if I asked you, 
about your cloud SQL maintenance and how would you manage it? What would you say in just a few words? I, I, I pay the cloud provider to manage it for me. <laughs> is that the point? <laughs> that is the point. Well, we already discussed it was hard. So like, I don't want to do it. SQL maintenance sucks. Can't. Apparently there's still stuff you have to do. Sorry, guys. But Google introduced quota monitoring um, with uh, single dashboard and alerting capabilities. I've almost got something for this. It feels, yeah. Is there a quota on my capability? I know. It's a single dashboard. How funny is that for a a grocer system? You only get one. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Very simple. Binary. Uh, in public preview, at scale management of Azure monitor alerts in Backup Center. If you're not going to look at your alerts in one console, you can now look at them in another. Nice. I mean, like the compliance people were too, uh, too consumed to, to click on the other tab, I guess. Mm. <laughs> AWS WAF now offers inline regular expressions. That's out of line. No, it's not. It's inline. <laughs> <laughs> And we're going to wrap it up with AWS Ground Station announces licensing accelerator. I just want to see Jonathan do his magic and go out on a zinger with this one. Good luck, man. <laughs> Wait, read it again. Go on. I'll get something. I'll think of something. <laughs> AWS Ground Station announces licensing accelerator. They must have hired an Oracle exec. But I'm bummed. Oh, excellent. <laughs> excellent. Uh, yeah. Great job, both of you. I'm going to give it. Jonathan today. Sorry, Ryan. <laughs> I, I, I really thought you were going to give it to Justin. I really did. Like, the- <laughs> oh, no way. Bringing up the personal hygiene habits of DevOps engineers oh, yeah. is definitely a winner. <laughs> yeah. Uh, awesome. Well, I agree with we you. made it through the show. Uh-huh. Yes. Awesome. Well, thank you, guys. It takes three or four weeks to edit this one, but we'll, we'll, it, yeah. we'll, we'll get it out there. That's fine. Awesome. And whatever you're listening to now, this is the edited version. So just imagine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> wow, we could just not edit it at all now. Just just think they wonder how bad it really was to be in with. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll see you later, guys. Good night. Bye, everybody. And that is the week in the cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Foghorn Consulting and Jump Cloud. Check out our website, the home of the Cloud Pod, where you can join our newsletter, Slack team, and send feedback or ask questions at thecloudpod.net or tweet us with the hashtag thecloudpod. Cloud Pod.